Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. The unbelieving world around us will, will look at the world with all its turmoil and sickness and decay and death. And often what they say as they look at a world like this is either that there is no God or if there is a God, then he is not good. And yet as we've been going through Genesis, uh, even these first three chapters, I, I hope you understand why it is so foundational for us to understand life uh, and the world we live in, understand God, uh, understand the rest of the Bible with the themes that are coming in, um, and even the way of salvation. You see, in Genesis, we, as we've been going through it, we've been reminded that the world God created was extremely good, was very good. There was no problem with it. The problem happened because man sinned, and man rebelled against God and went against the order and the rule and design of God. And so everything that we see here now, all the travesty that we see around us, is ultimately because of man's sin. See, and, and we saw even last week, even with man's sin and the consequences that we bear in this world and as we see around us, how God is still good in that to give us consequences because these consequences are ultimately to, uh, as a way for us to get back to him. See, one of the things that we need to realize, and especially as God's children, especially as believers, is that what we deserve is purely God's judgment and wrath. We don't deserve anything else. You know, sometimes we we do think, uh, you know, oh, I deserve this kind of life. I deserve this kind of family. I deserve this kind of church family. I deserve this kind of job or education or, or whatever circumstance. And yet what we need to understand is fundamentally we do not deserve any of it. All we deserve is God's judgment and wrath. Anything beyond that is really God's goodness to us in the form of grace and mercy. This morning we're going to look more uh, into God's goodness toward the man and the woman, and by implication, even toward us who are his children. And we're going to look at God's goodness uh, by following the three actions that are seen uh, in the verses that we've read from Genesis 3, 20 to 24. We're going to see God's goodness in the naming, that's in verse 23, uh, pardon me, in verse 20. We're going to see God's goodness in the covering, that's in verse 21. And we're going to see God's goodness in the exiling, that's in verses 22 to 24. 
So let's look first at God's goodness in the naming. Look at verse 20 again. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Here you see Adam renaming his wife. Remember the first time Adam saw his wife when, he, when God brought her to him. He was ecstatic. He was overexcited. Uh, you know, so overjoyed that he bursts into song you know, where he says, This one, this one. She is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Because she was unlike any of the animals that he had just named. And he names his wife that time in Genesis 2.23, if you look at it. It says, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam named his wife woman. Why? Because he was excited that she was connected to him in a special way, unlike all the other animals that were around him at the time. This naming was a way in which he wanted to express that connection that he had with another humankind, this woman that was there. Really, in the original language, man there is ish, and woman is isha. So Adam names his wife isha, because he was literally taken out of Ish. So, the, so you can see the connection there. But now Adam renames her and calls her Eve. Now the name Eve uh, basically means life or even life giver. And you say, why does he name his wife as life or, or life giver? The verse tells us why. It says, because she was the mother of all living. Now you might be thinking, hang on a second. But she doesn't have any children. She's not a mother as yet. So what's going on here? For us to understand what Adam is saying here, the significance of what he's saying here, we need to consider the context once again. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned against God, and God came and gave judgments for their sin and rebellion, and we saw that over the last two weeks. First he turned to the serpent, and the serpent was cursed, and there was no chance of redemption for him. Then if you remember last week, uh, actually let me just Go back a second. And if you remember, in that curse toward the serpent, there was also the good news given in its embryonic form. Genesis 3.15, where it said, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman was going to have an offspring that would defeat Satan and ultimately would make things right. Then God turned to the man and the woman. But God doesn't curse them personally like the serpent. He judges them by giving them consequences for their sin. And we saw that last week. To the woman, he said that you would have pain and troubles in conception and motherhood and in marriage. To the man, he said uh, that he would have to labor and toil and work the ground to get food. 
and that they would live a, a difficult life and would ultimately die. So that's, that's the preceding context. Now you come to verse 20, and look at Adam's response to all that has just happened. It's striking, isn't it? I mean, he's listening to the judgment of death, and you would expect Adam to be in despair, or, or maybe even angry at God. Or as one commentator suggested, he could have even named his wife Death, blaming her just like before, and now saying, oh, she's the cause of death now. We're all going to die, and everything is going to go into de- decay and all of that. No, but he doesn't do any of that. He responds in a very different way, despite all the judgments that are pronounced on them. He, you know what's happening here? He's accepting responsibility for his sin. He realizes that this is what he deserves. But he also sees God's grace laced in these judgments and sees God's goodness in this. And then even more than that, despite the sentence of death, he is holding on to the fact that God has said that from his wife would come an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. What is he doing? He now fully trusts God and believes in God's word. In other words, he has faith. You see, none of this has happened And yet, despite what has been dealt to him, you see faith here with Adam. I mean, and this is what Hebrews 11, 1-2 says, right? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Despite his lot, Adam believes and hopes puts his hope in God's word about the serpent slayer, even though they haven't even had children. This is what he has put his hope in. This is what he believes, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ in its most rudimentary form. As he heard the word of God, as he heard the gospel of Jesus, he had faith. And that's exactly what Romans 10, 17 says, right? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is what is happening here with Adam. And as a result, instead of blaming his wife, he sees his wife in better light again. And so he renames her Eve, which means life or life giver as she will be the first mother, so to speak, for the rest of mankind, for all the other human beings. This was an act of faith. And the fact that it says she was the mother of all living, it's like Adam is so sure that this is going to happen, that humankind will not stop with them, that from his wife would come the promised offspring who would make things right. So sure is he of this fact that it is stated as though she is already the mother of all living, even though she's not even pregnant. This was all evidence of Adam's faith in God. 
And this, but this faith that Adam had, and as we will see in the next chapter, Eve also shows evidence of faith. This faith that Adam and Eve have is also an evidence of God's goodness to them. I mean, think about it. Remember, previously we looked at the fact that the woman, she listened to the serpent and allowed her to get herself deceived and then sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. She didn't believe God at the time. The man, on the other hand, without being deceived, knowingly sinned and rebelled against God. He also didn't believe in God's word. Both of them, it seems, were particularly not satisfied with God and his word and so chose to neglect it, not believe in it, and chose to disobey God. And even after they ate the fruit, remember, they they didn't want to be in God's presence. They wanted to run away from him. And when questioned by God, they don't want to own up to their sin. All they did was blame shift, make excuses for their sin without taking responsibility for it. But now, they seem different. They accept the consequences for their sin, and they believe in God's word. Now you say, why the change? Why do they now believe and have faith and hope in God and his word? Well, it's because of God's own work. Again, remember in Genesis 3.15, we looked at this a few weeks ago. God, while cursing the serpent, said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. See, God said that even though the woman, and by implication, uh, even the man, even though they rebelled against God, they, they don't want to be with me, and they, they've chosen their own lifestyle, God says there's going to be a transformation. God will bring about a transformation where they will hate the serpent and ultimately love God again. When they were in their sin, there was no evidence that they loved God. They didn't believe in God's word. They simply listened to their sinful desires. But now God in his goodness has brought about the very transformation that he said he will bring about. They love God and believe in his word. Their hope is fixed on the fact that an offspring from Eve will crush the serpent. In other words, there's a hatred for for the serpent now, just like God said he would do. I will bring about an enmity between you and the serpent. See, the reason why they have faith and why they believe is because of God's transforming work. And we read some of that even this morning, right, in our Bible reading, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. For you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. And then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
See, it is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not something that we do. It is not our works. There's no human effort at all. That's why we cannot boast in any of it. It is a gift from God. Salvation and faith are both a gift from God. God brings about the transformation by means of his word through the working of his Holy Spirit. But in the experience of that person, that person who is transformed, they will respond in faith. I mean, it's the same thing that happened to all of us who are believers, right? The person who, those of us who have responded in faith, we might not all understand this, you know, right from the beginning. See, all we will know when we respond in faith to the gospel is, yeah, I responded in faith. But why is it that you responded and I responded and say perhaps not the other one? Because we are all dead in sin. Nobody seeks after God. Not one, Romans 3 says. If we are dead in our trespasses, why is it that suddenly we had faith? It is simply because of this. As we study scripture, we understand even the ability to respond in faith is because of God's work in the person. It is a precious gift. As God transforms us from within, we respond in faith. The faith that Adam exhibits is evidence of God's goodness. You know, perhaps there's some of you here today who are believers who are going through some difficulties. You know, maybe it's difficulty at home. Maybe it's difficulty at work. Or maybe some issues at school. Or maybe some physical ailments with your body. Whatever the difficulty, every difficulty that you and I have is because we are bearing the effects of living in a sin-cursed world. But, so how are we to respond to these difficulties as believers? Adam's response has something to teach us. Because it shows that the same God who, that granted Adam faith is his very hope. Adam, the first believer, despite his predicament, he does not despair. Why? Because his entire hope is on the one who would one day reverse the curse and restore what was lost through sin. Adam's God-given faith rested back on God and his word, and this was his hope. And it's the same for us who are believers too, right? Our God-given faith should rest back on God and his word. That Jesus will one day make everything right and we will be restored back to God. This is our hope. And it is this hope that will help us to carry on living in this sin-cursed world. So God's goodness is seen firstly in Adam naming his wife, which is evidence of faith and hope. Now secondly, we see the goodness of God 
in the covering, verse 21. The goodness of God in the covering. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The word here for made, it's the same word that is used in Genesis 1 and 2 that was used interchangeably with the word create to talk about God's work, particularly in creation. Remember, God as he created and made different things on the different days. And then we learned that on the seventh day, however, God having finished his work of creation, he ceased from that work, that creative work, and he rested. So now when it says, the Lord God made, it's hinting at the fact that God is beginning a new work. This time, not a work of creation, but a work of redemption. A work to save man from sin and ruin and judgment. And Adam and Eve would begin to understand more and more that their creator is also their savior. You see, Adam and Eve after they sinned. Remember, they they tried to cover their shame and their guilt with loincloths made of fig leaves. But that didn't do anything. I I mean, it's, it's so much like people today too, right? People who are lost in sin and they try to cover their shame and guilt by doing good or being more religious or being philanthropic or even try to numb the guilt and all that by you know, getting drunk or taking drugs or indulging further into all kinds of perversities. But in the end, nothing will be able to take away their shame and guilt that is within them, unless, of course, God intervenes. And that's what we see here. God is going to make a provision for them to save them. He's not just going to provide loincloths but he's going to that just cover the bare essentials. No, he's going to provide them with garments. See, there's a difference in the word there. To the, the word for garments is the word for tunic. It, it, it's a bigger type of clothing that would be worn that covers the, the body from top to, say, the knees or even up to the ankles. So God was going to cover them with clothes that would protect their whole body and keep them safe from the harsh world that they were going to face outside the garden. But even more than providing them physical safety, God was going to provide for them spiritual safety, a covering for their sin and shame and guilt. It says there, God made for the man and the woman garments of skin. And the word for skin is really a reference to animal skin. Now let me ask you, how are you going to get animal skin in the garden? Well, there are lots of animals. So by killing an animal, you get animal skin. So this involved, getting this animal skin, involved the shedding of blood and taking the life of an animal. And that's exactly what God did. Now, all the details are not there, but I think 
there's enough by way of progressive revelation and other things that we can say that's what God did. Because God didn't then have to cover them with skins, animal skins. He could have covered them with some kind of supernatural thing. And yet he covers them with animal skins. Now, in case some of you are thinking, but even animal sacrifice and things like that, I mean, that didn't come till later, right? Until the laws were given. Actually, it, it comes way before. In fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 4 of Genesis. Remember when Abel, as we will see, when Abel comes with an offering, he comes with an animal offering. How did he know how to do that? His parents would have told him. How did his parents know to do that? Well, through what God is doing here. So the fact that God provided animal skin garments for Adam and Eve, the implication is that God killed an animal to provide those garments. Now let me ask you something. Who should have died first? Who should have died first? Adam and Eve, right? Because they sinned. And yet what was killed instead? An innocent animal. An innocent animal was killed instead of Adam and Eve because of their sin. But why? So that a covering could be provided for their sin and shame and guilt. I mean, what, just think about Adam and Eve and what a shock it would have been for them. I mean, they've never seen death before. But they would have understood now with this act what death really meant. They would have understood that their sin and shame and guilt could not be covered by their feeble attempts of using lifeless fig leaves just to cover their loins. No, an innocent life had to be killed. There had to be shedding of blood. And they would have understood that death is the payment for sin. Another innocent life was to be shed to cover their sin and their shame and their guilt. One commentator writes, It's a work that Adam and Eve would never have conceived of because it involved the unprecedented taking of life. See, sin is very costly. It is not cheap. And it requires death as payment. The wages of sin is death. That's how serious sin is. And only through the shedding of blood, only through the death of an innocent one, can there ever be forgiveness of sin for the guilty sinner. And the last part of verse 21 says, And God clothed them. He replaces their lifeless, uh, you know, little loincloths made of fig leaves that wouldn't do anything for them with garments of animal skin covering their hole and covering their shame and their guilt. See, this act of God was then, as we 
progress on in scripture, it was pointing to something that would become part of the Israelite life. That's animal sacrifices as payment for the sin of the people. And yet when we look into the New Testament, Hebrews 10.4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So even these animal sacrifices, while they didn't take away the sin of the people, it pointed to an even greater reality that God would one day provide his own perfect lamb to be sacrificed for the sin of his people. And Jesus would be that ultimate innocent, spotless lamb of God who would then be the substitute slaughtered for the sake of his people. His death would be the payment for the sin of his people so that his people would be forgiven of their sin. And what would cover their lives? It would be the perfect, righteous life of Jesus so that they would be acceptable in God's sight. Theologians call this the great exchange. See, because on that cross, as Jesus was slaughtered, our sin-stained life was put on Jesus, even though he was without sin. And his perfect righteous life, he was disturbed of that, and that was put on to us. And so when God sees us as his children, that's what he sees. And this is the reality of those of us who are believers, who have put their full trust in Jesus, in the person and work of Jesus. But I just want to ask you this, for those of us who are believers. Do you take your sin seriously? Do you take your sin seriously? Now, I'm not talking about the one time when you got saved and when you saw your sin in all its vileness. And you saw the weightiness of your sin. And I'm not even talking about the once in a blue moon time when uh, you might see the weightiness of your sin and the vileness of your sin. Do you see your sin daily? Do you see your sin daily? Do you confess your sin to God daily and run to Jesus seeking forgiveness under the cross based on what Jesus has done? Do you do that? See, here's the problem. When we don't regularly, daily see our sin and confess it and ask God to forgive us and turn away from it, here's the problem. You and I will be tempted to cover it up by our own efforts. You and I will start even excusing our sin. We'll, we'll be tempted to just minimize it. Oh, nobody's perfect, so, uh, you know, that's all right. And sort of try and make our own coverings over it. And when we minimize our sin and don't see it enough, what's going to happen? We're going to stop running to Jesus. And we're going to stop remembering the cost that was paid for our sin. And the grace that has been showered upon us on the cross. 
And when we don't run to the cross, when we don't see Jesus on the cross, when we don't see what he has done, both the, the cost and the grace shown, and the gospel becomes blurry to us, do you know what's going to set in? Apathy. An apathy toward God. An apathy toward Jesus. A disinterest in the things of God. Where we're just going through the motions. Yes, I'm a Christian and I just kind of live life humdrum, just moving on. And you know what's going to happen beyond that as life becomes that way? Suddenly now the commands of the Lord become burdensome. The difficult circumstances in our life become heavy burdens as though God is too cruel to give us these burdens that we cannot carry. And then we're tempted to grumble against God and even think, begin to think differently about God where we begin to almost think, I don't think God means what is best for me. He looks like he wants to harm me. You see the progression of things? God has not changed. His goodness toward us has not changed. But it's our view of things. And it all starts with us not taking our sin seriously and how costly it is. I pray that we would all see our sin rightly, regularly, and even daily, which would cause us to run to the cross daily, which would cause us to then seek assurance of the forgiveness of our sin and where we gain renewed grace to live for God and make much of him, a renewed step in our Christian life. Of course, this is what my Lord has done. It is such a privilege to live for him. The animal garments that God clothed Adam and Eve with served as a vivid reminder to them of their sin and its costliness. It would serve as a reminder that their creator is also their savior. This was God's goodness and grace toward them to cover their shame and their guilt. So we saw God's goodness in the faith and hope of Adam, then in the covering that God made for them. And thirdly, we're going to see God's goodness in the exiling. God's goodness in the exiling, verses 22 to 24. Let me just read verse 22 first. Then the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now just first thing I would say about this is, now this doesn't mean at this point that it was only the man that had come to know good and evil. No, it was 
By implication, it's also the woman as well. But here God specifically focuses on the man again, as we have repeatedly seen in this chapter, because Adam was the head of the home. He was given the instruction of the Lord first, and he bore the greater responsibility. So God focuses on the man, and there's a deliberation within the triune God, between the three heads of the one triune God, where it, where the text reads, where God says, Behold, a man has become like one of us, plural, hinting at the Trinity. You know, God saying this, man has become like one of us. There's a sense in which there's a, he's, he's dismayed. In fact, if you really think about it, in one sense, Adam and Eve became unlike God. Because God had already made them, remember, in the image of God. They had made them in the likeness of God. Or in other words, they were already like God when they were created. You cannot go, get any more like God than that. Because the man and the woman were made in the image of God. But what happened as, a, as sin came into the picture, it only distorted that image. And so now man is not able to image God as much as before. He's not like God as much before. So in one sense, he's become unlike God. But in another sense, they did become like God, just like the serpent has had said, but not, again, in a good way, not in the way they expected, but they became like God, knowing good and evil. And we talked about this again a few weeks ago, that, that difference between knowing good and evil with God versus uh, man. You know, as one commentator had given a helpful analogy, it's the difference between an oncologist and a cancer patient. See, an oncologist, being a specialist doctor, understands everything about cancer because that's his specialty. He knows everything about it, including the treatment and the symptoms and everything else about it, the prognosis, everything. So he fully knows cancer in that sense. But the cancer patient, on the other hand, has a very different knowledge of cancer to the oncologist. Because the cancer patient experiences cancer within himself or herself, but also now knows cancer. So in the same sense, like the specialist doctor, God knows good and evil because he is the all-knowing mighty God. But the man and the woman, now because they had sinned, where they previously knew only goodness because they would, were continually recipients of God's goodness. They only knew good. But now because of sin, they have gained knowledge of evil by experiencing evil themselves when they sinned and, disobe and disobeyed God. Much like the cancer patient. So God says, man knows good and evil. And here's the problem. Now man is infected with sin. 
That means every thought, every desire, everything that he says and does, everything in the way he even reacts is all tainted by sin. And in this sinful state, man is judged to die. And we saw that last week, right? You will return to the dust. Now think about this, okay? So there's still sin in the man, and God has just pronounced that you are going to die. You're going to return to the dust. What is man going to try and do? He's going to try and reach out to the fruit of the tree of life. Why? So he can live forever. And that's exactly what God says next. Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. But you say, but but why is it a problem? I mean, mean, they've shown faith and God has covered their shame. So why is it a problem that they should live forever? Here's the problem. If they ate the fruit in that sinful state, they would be locked in that sinful state forever. You see? They could never be redeemed. As one theologian put it, to live in a sinful state forever, that's what hell is. See, that's exactly the kind of life a person would live, the kind of life that is hell, living forever in a sinful state without any hope of redemption. God would have been perfectly just to leave them there like that in their sinful state and for them to grab that, uh, the tree of life because it would be what they chose for themselves and they would be getting what they deserve. In fact, remember, this is exactly what Satan and his demons got. Because when they rebelled, Satan and his demons, they were locked in that sinful state with no provision to be saved. And they're locked in that state forever. But God, in his grace and his mercy, would not allow the first man and the woman to be in that state forever. Yes, the man and the woman, they believe in God now. They There's been a transformation for both the man and the woman. Yes, God has provided a covering for them. But the man and the woman still have the principle of sin within them. And on top of that, in this state, they would be able to image God only in a marred way. They wouldn't be able to image God and glorify him in the way God had originally created them. Let me just say this. You know, the, the idea of living forever, it fascinates the world. In fact, sometimes there's even an obsession for it of extending life and looking for different ways, you know, that magic pill, that fountain of youth. 
But here's the thing. Unless the sin principle within mankind is taken care of and even removed, it would be the most horrible thing to live with sin. That would be hell. So God takes the initiative and provides a solution for the good of man and for his glory. Verse 23 says, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So that the man would not reach out and eat from the tree of life. God sends the man out from the Garden of Eden. See, the garden was a sacred place for God where God manifested his presence in a very unique way. It was the place where they had free access to God's presence. It was the place where the first humans experienced the fullness of life associated with God's presence. But now God had become, pardon me, now man had become sinful. And he even had a body that was made of the very material that was cursed. And therefore that too had to perish. So man could not continue in the sacred garden of God. He could not continue to freely come into his presence of this perfectly righteous God of life. So God says, you cannot be in my presence or in my garden. So long as you have the principle of sin in you, because nothing unclean can, nothing sinful can be in my presence or can live here. So God sends the man out from the garden. In fact, verse 24 even adds that God drove out the man. It's an even stronger word. It's, the, it's that they were expelled out of the garden. And really, it's, it's the idea of being exiled. The man and the woman were exiled out from God's sacred garden because nothing unclean could live in it. Now, the end of verse 23 says, driven out of the garden. Why? To work the ground from which he was taken. Or to what purpose? To work the ground from which he was taken. In other words, to live out the consequences of his sin and finally die. See, rather than being in the sacred garden of God, which is marked by abundance, which is marked by the fullness of life in connection with God, now man is exiled out of the garden to work the ground, to live a less than full life, that he previously had, than what God had previously originally designed, and then ultimately die. The man and the woman, they're still given means to, to continue life. But this life would be significantly different from their life in the garden. Life now would be marked by difficulty and troubles and toils, but it would not last forever. It would come to an end at death. 
life outside the garden in the difficulty of life would be a constant reminder to the man and the woman of their sin and its consequences. And really, it's, when you think about it, it's a reminder to all of mankind of our sin and the very fact that things are not right between man and God. Verse 24. It says, He drove out, speaking of God, drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why east of the garden of Eden? Because that was the entrance to the garden of Eden. And again, you'll find a parallel here between the entrance to the garden being on the east side and the entrance to the tabernacle and the temple which were also on the east side. And, and for, if you want to know more about the parallels between the garden and the temple and the tabernacle, listen to the sermon that we, uh, you know, that section where we looked at the Garden of Eden uh, maybe a one, one or two months ago, and you'll see more of it and the significance of it. But really, ultimately, these, these parallels between the garden and the tabernacle and the temple it's like the temple and the tabernacle. They're, they're trying to recreate aspects of the Garden of Eden. And it's pointing to the fact that one day man will have free access into God's presence and will experience that fullness of life associated with God similar to what was there in the Garden. That's why these parallels are there between the Garden and the temple and the tabernacle. So God exiles man, and at the entrance of the garden, which is at the east of the garden, he places two things, a cherubim and a flaming sword. Now cherubim, they were angels of a higher order, and they were often associated with the the presence and the glory of God, and they were powerful creatures. And as if these powerful creatures weren't enough to guard the entrance to the garden, God also places a flaming sword that moved in every direction. You know, more likely this, this big fiery thing that just kept whirling around. In fact, there, there, there might even be some evidence with the word that's used there that it could be something like a white light, which is often associated with thunder. So if it's not like a big fiery thing just whirling around, it could be just these thundering zaps that's just going everywhere in all directions. Either way, the message was loud and clear. Because of man's sin, man could no longer freely come into God's presence and enjoy the fullness of life associated with him. Man was totally barred. It was an impossibility for man to ever go back by his own efforts. And when you think of God barring man, I mean, on the one side, 
God bars man from entering the garden because God is altogether righteous and he cannot tolerate sin. And so in that sense, we see that he's displaying his justice there, how righteous and just he is. But on the other side, God bars man from entering the garden and eating the tree of life for their own good. See, God was being merciful and gracious toward both the man and the woman. God loved them too much to make it an impossibility for them to ever have access to the tree of life in their sinful state. Do you see the grace of God? See the goodness of God in this? Because if they did that, they would be eternally doomed. So God did this expelling, this exiling, so that his glory would be displayed, so that his justice would be displayed, so that his mercy and his grace and his love would be displayed. So in all of this, God is showing his overall goodness. I wonder if there's anyone here who has not put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I know you're sitting here, but I wonder if you have actually put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand the fact that one day you will die is God's grace to you? Do you understand that? See, and that's because you're a sinful person. And you know that at the core of your being, that you are sinful. Now you might try to suppress it, you might try to cover it in different ways, but you know deep down inside that this is true, that you are a sinner before God. But if you were to live forever in this sinful state, without ever dying, know this, you would never, ever, ever have a chance to be restored back to God. And it is precisely because you will die one day that there is still hope for you that something can change about you and that you can be restored to God. You see, because of your sin, you stand guilty and condemned before your perfectly righteous creator, God. And all God can do because he's perfectly righteous and just is cast you away from his presence because he cannot tolerate any uncleanness in his presence. And there is nothing that you can do to make yourself acceptable in God's sight. Absolutely nothing. But God in his goodness, because of his great love and his mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in this sin-cursed world and then died to pay the price for sinners like you and me, for all of our sin. And then he rose on the third day, defeating sin and death and Satan. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. And the fact that you will die one day and you're not locked in your sin forever shows that there is still an opportunity for you to accept to be accepted in God's sight. 
Now you say, so what must I do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on who he is, that he is the son of God, and believe in what he has done. Jesus is the door. He is the way. He is that way back to the very presence of God, to the very face of God, and all the fullness of life that is associated with God. God has provided the way through Jesus Christ. Turn to him while there is time. See, because after this death, which the Bible calls as the first death, for those who reject Christ, there will be something called as the second death. And that second death will seal you forever in your sin. Forever. And then there is no chance for you to be ever redeemed. You will be forever cast away from God, and in misery and ruin and pain, you will live forever in the pit of hell. And God will be glorified in showing his justice toward you. So turn to the Lord Jesus and believe in him while there is still time. And if you say you believe, then turn from your sin and continue to turn to Jesus. And this should be the pattern of the rest of your life, a daily turning to Jesus and a daily turning away from your sin. And if you want to understand more about what it means to follow Jesus, please come and speak to me after the service or one of the members of this church or perhaps somebody you've come with that you already know as a Christian and talk to that person. But for those of us who are believers, this theme of exile is continued on in the storyline of the Bible. It's the idea of not being face to face with God and experiencing the fullness of life that is associated with him. It's really the idea of a holistic death, where there's spiritual death and physical death, and even the environment bears the shadow of death, which will ultimately be destroyed. That is exile in itself. Exile equals a holistic death, away from God's presence and that fullness of life associated with him. But understand this, believers. It is precisely because of exile that salvation is possible. You see, we were all born in exile. We were dead spiritually, living in a world that is marked by disease and decay and death. But God, in his goodness, in his grace and his mercy, gave us life. He made us spiritually alive. And guess what? Suddenly we begin to realize as we're made spiritually alive that we are exiles. And that's what First Peter is all about, right? We looked at that most of last year. That Christians are exiles in this world where we realize this world is not our home. We're not face to face with our Savior. But here's the thing we still have the principle of 
sin within us. And everything around us bears the shadow of death as well. And that's exactly why we need to die. And the world needs to be destroyed so that sin and its effects will be removed. And there is a holistic salvation where we will have a new body. There will be a new earth and a new heaven. If there was no death, if there was no exile, salvation would not have been possible. Everything would continue to be in this state of sinfulness. But as we who have been made spiritually alive, as we understand we are in exile, you know what it causes us? It It causes us to long for this day when we will see our maker and our savior face to face and we will experience the fullness of life that he intended for us and oh, we will have that when Jesus returns. But we know that ultimately all that will take place only through death and everything being renewed and created in newness of life. Let's praise our God for his goodness toward us and most of all in what he has done through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We realize that there is nothing that we deserve in this world for we rebelled against you. We stood condemned before you. Yet, because of your great love and mercy, you made us alive and we responded to you in faith. And now we we see the world the way it is. We see our own sin. We see the brokenness in this world and it longs, it makes us long for you. Father, we thank you for this. We pray that as we continue to move out of this exile, as we make this exodus out, that we would continue to be faithful to you, continue to represent you, continue to image you, and even savor you in and through our Lord Jesus as we remember what he has done on the cross and what he will do ultimately. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.